What exactly would a domestic transfer system look like in Australia? Why does governing body Football Australia think we need one? What does the Federation think club licensing is and why does it think it's a big deal? What does it even mean? And how does a national second division fit in all this? I'm your host Joey Lynch and this is Beyond the Lead with Football Australia's CEO, James Johnson. What do you think the most popular part of a football season is? Maybe it's pre-season when all the previews are coming out. Opening game of the season. Maybe the big derbies or promotion and relegation pushes. If your country has them, maybe it's the finals. Well, if clicks, retweets and shares and likes are your measure, it's probably got nothing to do with the actual games themselves. Instead, it's probably the transfer window. The rumour, innuendo and hope that comes with it, the manna from heaven for the metrics of footballing outlets. That is, unless you're in Australian football. Because Australian football's top flight has lacked the transfer system since the 1994 Senate inquiry by the Australian government into corruption in football recommended the abolishment of the domestic system. The NSL's ban carried into the A-League when Football Australia established the competition in 2005. Since becoming CEO of the Federation in January 2020, James Johnson has made the establishment of such a system his signature reform policy, pushing it in documents such as the 11 Principles for the Future of Australian Football and delivering a white paper on the concept in January 2021. Two years into his tenure, however, and the domestic transfer system remains unintroduced. In fact, the beneficiary of almost universal goodwill upon ascending his role Questions have begun to be asked of Johnson on his ability to deliver his vision for the game and why the delays have continued. Questions about sizzle and steak coming to the fore. Concerns also exist on if he is putting the cart before the horse when it comes to matters of development in a domestic transfer system. Concerns raised that perhaps it doesn't matter if the means to sell players exists if there aren't any players being developed that are actually worth selling. Johnson, though, is insistent that a domestic transfer system will play a key role in rejuvenating Australian football's youth development by better rewarding clubs that focus on it. Combined with a push to reform club licensing and the introduction of a national second division in 2023, he believes that structural changes is what's needed to boost the game and avoid things such as the Socceroos' backsliding form continuing. In an in-depth interview... Johnson discussed his proposed reforms of the Australian marketplace with me, as well as his push for changes to club licensing and a second division in Australia. This included his view on how the former two would affect the women's game. But first, just so everyone is on the same page here, I asked the Football Australia CEO to explain exactly what he and his organisation's version of a domestic transfer system actually was. So, so Joey, there's if, if we look at the backbone of a transfer system, um, the inner circle, if you like, the DNA, there's really three key areas. The first is having aligned transfer windows across a football country mm-hmm. where players can move in and out and register um, in certain periods of the year. 
The second is the creation of the transfer fee itself. And the third is what's called a training compensation system. So they're really the DNA. Um, we have implemented transfer windows for the first time in a coordinated way across the country. So there's a period every year now, um, one block of four weeks and the other block of 12 weeks, um, where players are registered in our competitions, our elite competitions across the country. So that's in place. Um, and it was a difficult uh, journey to get there because, as you know, our A-League season and our NPL seasons are played at different parts of the year. So trying to align those calendars across the country is quite complex, but, but that's done. The transfer fee is the other area, and the way that the system works in Australia at the moment, which I'm not sure many people understand, but I might lay it out, is in the A-League, um, transfer fees are prohibited by Football Australia rules and they have been prohibited ever since the A-League has started. They are prohibited. Outside the A-League though, so in NPL and below, they're actually permitted. And I'm not sure a lot of people understand that, um, but the way that a transfer fee is payable is that it's capped at 50% of the remaining uh, value of the player's contract. So I might just break that down. What that actually means is that if a player in the NPL has a two-year contract that's worth $50,000 each year, so the total value is 100000 and halfway through that contract, a club wanted to buy the player out of his contract, then the fee could not be more than $25,000 because there'd be $50,000 left on the remaining value of the contract and it's capped at 50% of that which actually disincentivizes uh, transfer fees to be paid because you're effectively paying less than what the actual value of the playing contract is so that's the scenario that exists today um, but it's 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 where we would like both in the A-League to eventually lift the prohibition um, to create transfer fees in the A-League but also outside of the A-League um, we want to ensure that this cap that was set in 2007 no longer exists. And that then creates transfer fees that are payable throughout the country. The third area is training compensation. And this is a mechanism where payments are played to clubs for players that they've developed, but whose players are off contract. And it's normally paid for players who are under the age of 23. Um, we have a training compensation that is in place at the moment in Australia, but it's very much outdated because it hasn't been touched since 2012. That was the last time training compensation was discussed. And the way it works at the moment in general terms, in a very simplistic way, is that when a player moves from an NPL club to an A-League club, um, there's a $10,000 payment that is made for training compensation if the player is under 23 years of age. However, it doesn't matter how many play, how many years that player has been at the club that the player is leaving from, it's still $10,000. Um, what a more appropriate mechanism, in my view, is, is that the training compensation payment should be paid on an annual basis. So you incentivize clubs all over the country to keep players um, at their club's training and to hold on to players for longer terms and then the training compensation that's payable 
is aggregated based on the seasons that a player trains at a club. So just to break that down, um, right now, if a player moves from an NPL club to an A-League club, it's $10,000 whether the player was at the club for one year, five years or 10 years. The system I think we need to introduce is that the payment made to the, um, the, 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 the releasing club is, is aggregated depending on the amount of years that the player trains at the club. I think that's what we've got to look into. So, in a nutshell, what is a tra- what is a what, what do we mean by a, a transfer system? It's training compensation, which we need to implement, and we need to implement changes. It's the transfer fee, um, which we need to lift the prohibition or at least lift the cap outside of the A League, and it's the transfer windows that we've already put in place. That is the very heart of a transfer system. Because when you were at FIFA, you obviously oversaw aspects of the global transfer system in your responsibilities there. How does Australia's current system compare to what would be considered the global standard? I think the, the current standard in Australia is quite far off the mark. And we know that by any measurement because there's, um, there's no uh, flow down um, of, of revenue. So normally what a transfer system does is players will move up a pyramid and revenues will trickle down to those clubs that participated in training the player. Um, we're not seeing those those distributions and the economics work. There's not a lot of money that's coming from the top part of the pyramid down the bottom. And one might say that that just means that the clubs at the top of the pyramid are going to pay more money. It's actually the opposite because in a proper ecosystem where players move up and revenues move down, it means that the club at the bottom of the pyramid or the lower levels are incentivized to train players, to invest in scouting, um, to make players better. So the product, which is the player, ends up being better when that player moves up the pyramid. And I don't think um, we have that in place at the moment. We do have massive issues around the game in terms of our player development. Um, we don't have players at the moment that are playing in top leagues around the world. And I think we can bring a lot of those issues back to the fact that we don't have a proper proper functioning transfer system in place um, in Australia. I think the other area, if I compare Australia to, to global standards, and I come back to training compensation, um, in global football, when there's an international move, training compensation is paid on a year-by-year basis. So if it's $50,000, let's say, for an international move per year and you've trained at a club for three years and you move abroad, it's 50,000 times three years, which is 150,000. So again, if we go back to the situation in Australia, the way it is at the moment, it's a one-off payment. And if we go back to what the objectives of a training uh, compensation system is within a transfer system, it's to incentivise clubs to develop players and hold on to players for longer periods and train them for longer periods. And if it's only a one-off payment, the question I have is, is that really what we're incentivising clubs to do? Um, and I don't think we are, through our current training compensation system, uh, incentivising clubs to train players. And the rest of the world is. And I think we're seeing the results of that play out at the moment. Because, obviously, youth development is an incredibly multifaceted 
um, field. There's so much that goes into it. It's a decades-long process. You get a five-year-old. They need you, that's the base core, and you need to develop that. Why do you think the introduction of a transfer fee is such an important aspect of improving Australia's youth development compared to everything else that needs done? Because you need a you need not just um, twelve clubs are responsible for developing players. You want fifty or a hundred clubs. You want clubs from Perth to Adelaide to Brisbane to Townsville to Hobart, all over the country, that go into their clubs, their canteens every week and think about how do I develop the next Harry Kuehl or Tim Cahill or Aaron Moy. You need to incentivise clubs to do that. And in the current system, um, there is not a proper functioning transfer system, which means that if a club invests in player development, they can lose the player without receiving any compensation. So why will clubs be incentivized to develop players if there's a return on the investment that they put into developing players? The club will be more incentivized to train players, and I think that's a big issue for us at the moment. So going back to your point, if we can have a hundred clubs all over the country. Um, outside of the A-League that are thinking every year about scouting, about putting in top coaches, uh, improving facilities, uh, improving the level of information given to the players because they're going to get a financial return, I think we're going to develop a lot of better players in years to come. Because we do occasionally see young players move from the NPL directly to overseas clubs. And as you said, there's nothing stopping uh, local clubs from selling players internationally for a transfer fee. So why haven't we been seeing that more on the international front? Is it because there's just not enough, there isn't a fallback option for the domestic level? So if you're a club outside of the A-League, um, you, you're going to be incentivised absolutely to move players abroad because there is a, a, a transfer system that exists outside of Australia. So if I'm the Brisbane Strikers and I have a good young player and I know that I might get a maximum of $10,000 if the player would move to Brisbane Raw, whereas I could get two or 300000 moving the player abroad, um, certainly my interests are going to be to move the player abroad and not into the A-League. And I don't think that that's a kind of system that we want to have here in Australia. So I'm actually surprised that clubs outside of the A-League are not doing more of this. But I think you're right. This is a, a, a current trend that is developing, and I'm not surprised that it is. I mean, why do you think why do you think we're not seeing it more often? Is just players aren't good enough? Why not? I think the the the, the level of player um, is 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 it a good level over here? Um, Are they just being hoarded by A-League clubs? No, I don't think they're being hoarded, but I think that if you compare our system to Belgium or Croatia or Uruguay, they have clubs at all levels of the pyramid that are trying to develop players, and they're doing it because they're incentivized through the movement of players, because when they move a player up a pyramid or outside of the country, they're going to get a return. Um, I think that's the main issue here, Joey. I think that our clubs are not incentivized to develop players. Because if they do, they lose them and they get nothing in return. Can a salary cap and a domestic transfer system coexist? You're talking about the need to see basically see players as assets that can be developed and sold for a profit. Salary cap, we've seen the effect that it has on players on one or two year deals, and that makes it very they're more seen as just something that's got to fit into a jigsaw puzzle rather than assets. Can the two coexist? 
I think they can coexist, uh, and I'll, I'll come back to, as to why shortly. Whether or not it's a best practice is another question, but they can certainly coexist. I, I, I don't believe um, that they can't. My logic is very simple. Um, in the rest of world football, particularly in Europe, um, you have financial fair play and a transfer system that operate together, and they work very well together. Um, financial fair play is a form of a salary cap. Um, what financial fair play is at, at, at its essence um, is that each club that participates in Europe is capped at spending what they generate. So if you generate $100 million a year, you're capped at spending up to $100 million. In theory, that's what it is. In theory. <laughs> Whereas in Australia, you're capped based on um, a, a, a league-wide cap. So the point I'm trying to make is financial fair play is a form of cap, albeit it's a different form of a cap to a salary cap that we know in Australia. Um, but the financial fair play system works very well with the transfer system in Europe, so I don't see why they're not compatible, a salary cap and a transfer fee. Having said that, though, um, um, is it best practice? I don't think it is. I don't think it is best practice to have a Australian sports salary cap um, uh, uh, acting together with a transfer system. I think we do need a transfer system, and I would like to see some serious consideration given to the current salary cap system, and my logic is very simple. What is an objective of the um, A-League salary cap? It's twofold. One is to create competitive balance. That is, every team at the start of a season has equal opportunity to win the league. We know that that's not the case. And the second objective is to create financial stability uh, across the league. And I'm not sure we can say that all our clubs are financially stable at the moment. So the question is, is the current salary cap um, meeting the objectives that the salary cap is seeking to achieve, and, and, and my view is it is not. You've talked a lot about what the domestic transfer system can do for NPL clubs and community clubs, and like, and with good reason. Post independence, now they are your primary stakeholders, the ones you look after. The A leagues are independent, and whether they are also stakeholders, what, in your opinion, do A league clubs stand to benefit from introducing a domestic transfer system? I think it's a it's a it's a whole new system. It's it's exciting. I think for the bigger clubs, uh, your your Melbourne Cities, your Melbourne Victories, your Western Sydney Wanderers, and your Sydney FCs, um, they're ultimately going to end up with the better players in a transfer system. But they're also probably going to pay more. And 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 as I said before, the players will move up, and the distributions um, will move down. If we look at clubs like a Central Coast Mariners or an Adelaide. Uh, it creates a new identity, I think, for these sorts of clubs in a transfer system um, where they become a Southampton um, or a, a Porto that are focused on going out, recruiting the best young players, giving younger players opportunities, and then they're able to sell them on. Um, so I think what it does is it changes the identity of the clubs, but I think it becomes very exciting because what you see is better player development um, across the A-League um, and also you see a, a different type of economy where the bigger clubs are paying more but getting the better players. So you're seeing a trickle-down effect that we don't currently have. So I think there's a lot um, of opportunity for the A-League clubs and I think the other point, Joey, is your product, which is the player at the end of the day, are going to be better. So the more uh, top talent that 
we produce as a nation, the better for the A-League clubs. Um, they're going to be more competitive not only in Australia but also abroad in the Asian Champions League. And I think our performances in Asia is, is an area that we can really improve. We've talked a lot about what a domestic transfer system can do for the men's game, but that's only 50% of football in this country. Are you looking at how to implement transfer systems in the women's game, given that it's a very different landscape in terms of player movement from A-League women clubs to NPL clubs? It's very fluid. Transfer fees globally are still in a very nascent stages in the women's game. How does Australia try to maybe be at the forefront of that? I don't know. What's Football Australia's view on that? I think we need to treat the women's game um, in a transfer system sense different to, to the men's. Um, the logic is that uh, the, the men's game, the economy, is a lot bigger. If we look globally, um, the transfer system over the past few years is, is, is bounced between about five and eight billion dollars on, on, by aggregate of the amount, that's the full amount of transfer fees that are paid in any given year, five to eight billion dollars. That's what we're talking about in the men's game. Globally, the women's game, the total transfer fees are less than 100 million so the the economies of scale are are very different and I think if you try to apply the same system in the men's game to the women's game um, you're probably going to create problems around a player's inability to actually move because the the fees um, might be too high can we start to introduce absolutely but it needs to look different on the women's game to the men's game that would be my view is that something FA is already looking at and having internal discussions about? Yeah, there is a focus on the men's game with the transfer system because the economy um, is, is more mature. And when you introduce a transfer system, um, it does start to reshape the football economy, if you like. Um, so the, the focus would be on the men's side for the transfer system. But that's not to say we're, we're forgetting about the women. The women's game um, as an economy is at a different stage of development to the men's, so naturally we need to treat it differently. So we've been talking a lot about a domestic transfer system and reforming training compensation, which I guess given that the vast majority of transfers actually are free transfers at the end of the day, training compensation is a really big deal, but it's obviously something that's very important to you. You released a white paper on domestic transfer system in January 2021. I guess the most obvious question is why don't we actually have one yet? It's a major change in the, the way that we operate as a sport. It's a major change in the way that clubs need to think about the recruitment um, and the contracting of players. Um, so it, 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 it's a system that is really going to require the whole ecosystem to really buy into it. Um, we've gone through a long consultation process, so we've spoken to the A-League clubs We've spoken to the PFA, we've spoken to the NPL clubs, we've spoken to the member federations who run the NPL competitions, we've spoken to the coaches, we've spoken to the agents. So um, we've done a long consultation, but I think we're coming to a point now um, where we need to start making decisions and stakeholders need to be ready that we may take some quite aggressive decisions to start implementing the transfer system. And that's something that we're considering at the moment. It might be a case of um, beginning the transfer system in a certain part of the football pyramid, um, whereas it might take longer to uh, establish it in other parts. 
of the system. So we're looking at mechanisms and different stages, if you like, that we can implement a transfer system. But we absolutely want them, uh, want one, and we want our stakeholders to really buy into it. And I can't say that we have full support across the stakeholder groups to implement a transfer system at this point in time. So just to clarify on that, Football Australia, in your role as the overarching federation and the regulator of the game, you have the ability to impose a domestic transfer system if you want. You don't want to do it without everybody to say so, but you have that ability. We do. We we, we have uh, requirements through different agreements with different stakeholders to go through meaningful consultation. Um, But following that process, we do have the authority to implement it. Um, Ideally, we convince people on merit that this is good for the clubs, it's good for the players, and most importantly, it's good for the whole of the game. Uh, And we do believe it is. Um, So we'll continue the consultation with the stakeholders, but there's going to come a time where we're going to have to take decisions um, around what we think is in the overall interest of the sport. Say you don't have total buy-in, who's not buying in? Well, you've got, um, you've got, I think, clubs outside of the A-League. Uh, you've got member federations who run competitions outside the A-League that naturally want change um, because training compensation, for example, uh, the discussion hasn't been on the table since 2012. Um, we're in 2022. That's 10 years where um, you know, a $10,000 payment 10 years ago is not $10,000 today and these issues just haven't been discussed so you've got a lot of people in the industry that want to have the discussion um, and you've got others who might at this stage think that it's not a top priority for them because they're focused on other strategies Um, so we what we would like to see is we would like to see the same level of support that we're seeing from the NPL clubs Um, from the member federations reflected in the top tier um, of the game who at the moment naturally are having some challenges because of the world we live in today with COVID around finishing competitions but if we don't if we don't do this now um, we're going to lose years around um, player development and the quicker we can put player development at the forefront of our thinking throughout the system the quicker we're going to be um, having better national teams and better top-tier competitions, I think. I guess you're talking about player development, and I guess a lot of these things you run into the problem that economists do. A lot of your assumptions surrounding the domestic transfer system are based on the assumption that the Australian football community is a rational actor and that once you get this in, they will change their behaviour to develop players. Are you confident that that is the case? Well, it is. I mean, the first step is to change rules. Um, and if the rules are drafted in the right way, if they're understood through good consultation, um, what they're trying to achieve, if the policy is right behind the rules, then that over time will start to change behaviours. And that's really what the objective is. So so this isn't like a quick fix you're seeing. You're seeing this as a multi-decade changing of attitudes. We'll see some signs initially, but in five, ten years' time, do you think the gradual change in behaviours will bear fruit? I, th- I think that's right. It's it's uh, 
the 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 easy part is is drafting the rules and and you mentioned before we've we put out a white paper um, which is very detailed and we did that 12 months ago we do have a set of rules that is ready to be implemented but we're trying to convince the stakeholders that it's the right approach and we've still got some work to do but even once we're we've implemented the rules and we put the system in place um, it's the behaviors that are going to take time um, they're ultimately going to help us achieve the outcomes that we want and I think that will take longer than just the implementation of the regulations and the rules themselves. Um, another part that we really need to focus on is the education um, around how to operate within a transfer system. Um, we've seen some really good examples this year in the A-League in respect of the international transfer system that already exists. We're seeing Adelaide for example who um, did some good manoeuvring with Riley McGree, and we're seeing that they're going to benefit um, through Riley's transfer. Excuse me, through Riley's transfer from Major League Soccer to the Championship in England, um, through a sell-on clause that they negotiated when Riley left Australia, left Adelaide, and only now the subsequent transfer will Adelaide benefit, and that's financially I'm talking about, and that is the um, result of uh, a club who understands how to operate in the international transfer system. So this kind of education we need to see all across the country. And I think if we have a domestic transfer system and clubs are waking up and operating it every, every single day, they'll understand how to also operate in the international system because finally we'll have alignment between the player contracting system, the transfer system in Australia, and it would be aligned to how the rest of the world operates in the international transfer system. That education, does it filter into the work that um, Trevor Morgan, the interim national technical director, does and the coaching education things that Football Australia do? You identify the type of players that are receiving uh, transfer fees around the world. So is it technical players? Is it midfielders that can control the game, that sort of thing? And does that filter into the, the education process as well? Um, it, you, you're absolutely right. If, if, if you break down the value behind a player. Um, there's a lot of different indicators. Your age is an indicator, um, the number of national team performances, the level of the league that you're playing in, these all create the value. But the other point, which is where you're going, is what is the position of the, of the player? And you know that a number nine that scores 20, 30 goals a season is usually gonna be more valuable than a um, right back or a left back. Um, this, this, this is quite normal in the transfer system. The different positions um, will create their own market value, if, if you like. And, and a centre forward that scores goals um, is going to be valued differently from a number 10 to a left midfielder to a right midfielder to a centre back or a goalkeeper. Yes, position specificity um, does determine different values in the transfer system. If I could just pivot to another reform that Football Australia is looking to introduce, probably alongside the domestic transfer, this club licensing framework that you have been discussing, it's probably not as height as the domestic transfer system, but certainly below the A-leagues, it's a very significant reform for these NPL clubs. Could you walk me through Football Australia's vision for this club licensing framework? So club licensing is uh, is a project that we've invested in in the past 12 months. Um, we've recruited a new um, head of club licensing, uh, uh, an executive 
called Natalie Lutz, who's joined us from CONCACAF. Natalie was uh, responsible for rolling out club licensing uh, across 40 countries in the North America, Central America and the Caribbean countries. Um, so she's very experienced and one of the global leaders in this space, so we're very happy that she's joined us. Um, Natalie has been focused on implementing the club licensing system for the A-League clubs for the purposes of qualifying for the Asian Champions League. That happened this year. Um, nine clubs out of the 12 were awarded licenses. Three clubs were not. Um, her focus now is on uh, expanding the scope of the licensing system into the A-League itself, um, meaning clubs need to meet these standards to continue their participation in the A-League. And she's also focused on the next level down, which is rolling out a framework of club licensing for the NPLs um, that the member federations will then um, execute um, under that same aligned framework. So that's the, the, the work that's being done at the moment. But I think it's important that we understand what actually is a club licensing system. Uh, it's got nothing to do with IP. It's about setting strategic criteria in different areas um, of a club, from infrastructure to technical football matters to um, finance to legal matters. So those are the areas that are of focus and setting the criteria that is right for the level um, of competitions throughout a country, which will vary. So, you know, there'll be heavier criteria at the top end of a pyramid as opposed to the middle or the, the lower end. But setting those criteria up so that, one, you can um, push clubs to keep growing and developing in strategic areas, but ultimately you're able to start benchmarking yourself as a club throughout the country on where you sit in areas you can prove. Uh, areas you can improve. So once we have this system set up all across the country and we're aiming to complete the implementation um, within the next 12 months, you're going to be able to be a club like uh, Wollongong who can say, okay, I want to be in the top tier, I want to be in the A-League one day. Um, right now I'm at this level, but if I want to end up in the A-League, I need to achieve A, B, C, D, E. And you can see it because it's transparent um, and you can see where the gaps are that you need to fill as a club to move up into high divisions of football. Sounds like this is an opportunity also, stratification of all the different levels. In some areas of the NPL, the elite level seems to have grown to the point where many clubs are considered elite, but the, the talent just isn't there to justify it. Is this an opportunity to bring that down again and become more selective with the elite label so that there is that clear pathway of um, just here's the clubs that are elite, they need to meet these standards, but the other clubs below can settle down into a more realistic level for them? Yeah, the, in, in setting criteria, um, and, and this was a, a learning that... Um, that it, that uh, I learned when I was at FIFA and we rolled the system out globally, you've got to set realistic criteria for the level of competition. If the criteria is too high, clubs either won't meet it and they're open to sanctions, which is not the intention of the system, um, or they'll try to find ways to achieve the criteria um, when 
their focus actually should be on building their club and developing their club. So the criteria, the, the, the bar that you set it at needs to challenge clubs, but it can't be so high that clubs can't meet it. So that's a skill, and, and someone like Natalie, I think, um, brings that type of expertise because she's had to set the criteria for clubs, say, in North America, but also set the criteria for clubs in the Caribbean, um, which which both ends of the, the, the spectrum are probably very applicable to our different levels of football in Australia. Is this perhaps an opportunity to reduce some of the costs associated with the game in terms of both playing and coaching? So, if like, for example, an NPL 3 side and an NPL side meeting roughly the same criteria now with these reforms, the NPL 3 side, maybe the requirements are lessened a little bit, or go cheaper to play there, cheaper to coach there, and they can manage their progression up the pyramid after that? I think the transfer system, um, once implemented, uh, will probably help with reducing certain registration fees across the country more so than a club licensing system would. Um, if If we take a step back for a moment... Uh, what we've done over the past 12 months is we've analysed every registration fee, every cost, um, every level of every club across the country. So we have a system now that we can say, well, what does Mount Gravatt in, in, in Brisbane um, charge players who are under 6 or under 10 to play? And we can compare that to, say, um, South Melbourne in, in Melbourne. So we see all that now. We've done the analysis. What I can tell you is for the vast majority of the country, and this is something new, registration fees are actually very low across the country. My children play for Leichhardt Saints. They pay $110 a year to play football. This is not expensive. The issue, though, in Australian football is at the elite levels, the elite levels in the NPLs, where you're seeing some parents have to pay $2,000 $2,000 and above to play football but this is the elite level it's the um, it's the exception of the clubs not the general group of clubs and it's at the top end and once we implement a transfer system and clubs are able to generate revenues through the movement of players once they develop them I think that that will offset the need at these elite clubs to charge such high registration fees um, so to answer your question, I don't think it's a club licensing system that will help us tackle um, those high registration fees at the elite club level. I think it's more of a transfer system discussion that will help us solve that. And sort of mirroring what I asked you surrounding the domestic transfer system for the women's game, how does the club licensing come into the women's game? Licensing for the women's game is uh, it, it's absolutely necessary. We've just got a, uh, a fund from FIFA we successfully applied for um, support to implement club licensing in our women's game Um, that'll be part of Natalie's responsibilities as well Uh, and again like what we just talked about the men's game it's really about understanding the level that the clubs are at and starting to focus on how you start um, um, growing them in certain strategic areas and and that will happen on on the women's side absolutely. You've talked about, you used the Wolves as an example, and they one day want to go from the NPL to the A-Leagues. Here's all the steps they need to do that. I imagine in that vision, a national second tier slots in there as sort of like the bridging point. What's the status on that? So we've been very clear, I think, um, over the past 12, 24 months that, that we want a second tier. I think that's different from the former administration. 
um, who I'm not sure had a clear view on it. We want a second tier. Um, what we would like, and the reason we want a second tier, is we want to have the A-League, um, men's and women's, of course, um, at the top of the period. We want a second tier, and then we want the NPL under it. And that starts to create a three-tier pyramid, um, if you like. And we need to really fill that gap between the NPL and the A-League, because the gap is, is quite frankly, too big at the moment. It's another national-level competition um, where players get exposure at a national level. We'd like this competition to have a, a strong focus on um, giving young Australian players more opportunities, more match minutes, so that we can help um, our pathways and our, our development of players. Um, we said that we want to kick this competition off in 2023, so we're on target to kick that off. Now, whether we play a winter season and align with the Australia Cup and the NPL, that's one consideration, or whether we try to align it with a summer season, which means it would kick off at the back end of 23 and go into 24 and align it with the A-League. That's another consideration, but we haven't decided um, how the calendar will look. We want to kick it off in 23 and be one of those two options. Um, and we've just appointed uh, uh, an external consultant um, who will work with me and a small team at FA to drive the second tier every day. So we're committed to doing it. We've put a resource, full-time resource, into this and this person will drive it. Um, he will start off with effectively analysing two models, the home and away league concept and the Champions League concept that we've debated now for many, many months. Um, we'll know what it's going to cost each of the participant clubs to, to play in both competitions. Then we're going to go and speak with our member federations and of course the clubs who would participate and say, these are our options, this is, this is what it's going to cost which way do we go? Um, I would expect that that would be done by the middle of 2022, that piece of work. And in the back end of 2022, we'll be effectively putting into motion um, the selection of the teams that would participate um, in the competition in 2023. Is there a danger that there won't be enough lead-in time for these participatory clubs, these inaugural participatory clubs, if they're getting, say, September, October, and you go with a winter staging? Is there a risk that with only seven, eight months, they're not able to build a sustainable foundation for that national second tier? Um, I, I think that's a long enough runway. I think if we're if if we land on our model by the middle of this calendar year, and we go into a selection process soon after that, whether we play the winter season kicking off in March, April, May, and playing through the calendar year, or whether we go the summer competition route. Um, kicking off in September, October that year, I think we're going to have a long enough runway. And I think there's enough appetite for the clubs um, that I've spoken to to really get into fifth gear and, and, and move into this competition quickly. So it sounds like you've obviously got a very broad uh, reform model that you want to pursue and that you've been talking about pursuing for a long time now, but as, as we've discussed on this thing none of them are implemented yet are you feeling the pressure that you need to start backing these up and putting these in sooner rather than later i'm not feeling the pressure no i think that if you look at uh, what we've done over the past two years 2020 was really about well first of all it was navigating uh, covid a hundred year pandemic it was also about setting up a vision for the sport and taking our time to 
consult in a meaningful way with a very broad group of stakeholders. We established a vision. It's a 15-year vision, don't forget. It's not a um, one, two or three-year vision. It's a 15-year vision. Um, and also in 2020, we landed on a written agreement between us and the A-League clubs about a new governance structure. That was the year 2020. The year 2021 was about the implementation of the unbundling, which was a really, uh, it was a it was a real overhaul of the way that football is governed in Australia. It's, it's a a 17-year vision to get there because we were talking about this as a game back in 2003. So that is a huge government shake-up. And 2021 was also about rebuilding the business. The business wasn't in a good state um, in 2020 and it wasn't in a good state in the years leading up to 2020. Um, And I can say with confidence now that from a business standpoint, Football Australia is in the healthiest position it's been for many, many years. And that's what our focus was in 2021. We're in 2022 now, and uh, the board, myself and my executive team, have decided that we need to pivot from um, focusing on rebuilding the business to tackling football issues. And we feel like we're in a good position because we have been talking about um, our vision, about creating a second tier and implementing a club licensing system and creating a transfer system for some time now and it's been deliberate because when we're ready to start implementing and hitting um, the go ahead button we wanted to make sure that the whole football community knew exactly where we stand and I think we're very clear on what our vision is where we want to go and as you said um, in 2022 we're going to have to start implementing these mechanisms and we're probably going to ruffle some feathers with different stakeholders but that's what we will do if we believe it's in the overall best interest of the sport. Well, James Johnson, thank you very much for joining us and outlining some of the plans that Football Australia has for the years ahead. No doubt not all of them, but some of them. So thank you very much. Thanks, Joey. Thanks for having us on. So, obviously a lot on the agenda for Football Australia. And indeed, there's a lot on the agenda for everyone in Australian football right now with the A-League season in full swing the National Premier Leagues and grassroots seasons beginning to kick back into action around the country, and the Socceroos returning to action for crucial World Cup qualifiers next month. So plenty of opportunities for you to get out there and catch a game for yourself. But if you can't be there in person, ESPN Australia is your one-stop shop for all your coverage of what's going on down here in Australian Calcio. Myself, Ante Jukic, Marissa Lordanik, Stephanie Brands, and the Far Post Pod bringing you all the news and views you need when it comes to the round ball game. But for now, I'd like to thank you for joining us on another edition of ESPN's Beyond the Lead, this time for a conversation between myself and Football Australia CEO James Johnson. I've been your host, Joey Lynch, and as a reminder, you can catch this episode, every other episode of Beyond the Lead, and all of, all of ESPN's collection of podcasts on audio goodness wherever you happen to get your podcasts from. If you're enjoying Beyond the Lead, or any of those other podcasts, be sure to subscribe, leave a famous five-star review, and help spread the word. But thanks for listening today, tomorrow, or whenever you happen to be listening to this, and do not fret, as I'll catch you soon for another deep dive into the world of sports as ESPN takes you Beyond the Lead very soon.